Amen. You may be seated. I'll ask you if you would, please turn with me in your Bible uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, uh, through chapter 5, verse 3. Again, that's uh, Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 3. Let's begin with prayer. Almighty God, in You are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our hearts and minds by the power of Your Holy Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and Your Word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what You say to us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Again, the reading of God's Word from the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 4 with verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout Galilee Uh, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reading of God's word, may the Lord add his blessing to it. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses upon the cathedral door at Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517, he did so believing that the church had erred on the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And having erred upon that doctrine, uh, that there truly could be no good news. Christianity uh, would become works. And as Luther personally knew, 
But there was no comfort in that. For Luther knew that his works condemned him, and not only him, but us all. We do not stand before the living God worthy in our own member, merit. God accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is not the joint work between God and us. Justification is the act of God alone, act of God's free grace. God doesn't pardon our sins because we are worthy. He pardons our sins out of his mere good pleasure. Well, when Luther nailed those theses and when he took his subsequent stand, it was not well received within the Roman Catholic Church. And within a few years, he found himself on trial for heresy, the penalty for a guilty verdict being death. But he was bound by conscience in the word of God. They could kill him, but he wasn't going to retract. The gospel of Jesus Christ was at stake. 400 years after Luther, J. Gresson Machen found himself face to face with another ecclesiastical Goliath that had lost its way. This time, it was not Roman Catholic doctrinal corruption. This time, it was Protestantism losing its way. More exactly, it was doctrinal decline in the Presbyterian Church. And seeking to make itself more attractive to the modern person, the Presbyterian Church has started to waver on the authority of Scripture upon miracles and the supernatural. It had seen its numbers grow greatly at the turn of the century when it revised the Confession of Faith in 1903, lessening the Calvinism of that confession. And the thought 20 years later was that it could grow even more if it just loosened up on other doctrines. Doctrines that offended the modern ear. Doctrines like the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But in order to make the whole theological package work, liberals in the Presbyterian Church knew that there had to be a shift in Jesus himself. Jesus had to become modern. It wasn't just that the church's understanding of Jesus had to become modern. It wasn't just that proclamation about Jesus, concerning Jesus, needed to become modern. Jesus needed to become modern. Out with thinking of Jesus... Is God come in the flesh. And whatever you do, don't think of him as going to the cross, a blood sacrifice to modern ears, so repugnant. Jesus is, is a good man. He's a fine teacher. He is someone to follow. He was someone who sought after God and God blessed him. That's what we have to understand concerning Jesus. Don't be talking about virgin births and dying on a cross and the resurrection from the dead. That's a bridge too far for modern ears. 
And further, that's not what Christianity is about. That was the liberal contention. Uh, Christianity is not about any of those doctrines. Christianity is about trying to live as Jesus lived. Christianity is not a doctrine. Doctrine only causes trouble. Doctrine only causes fights. And uh, having just gone through the Great War, aren't we all tired of fighting? Well, in response, Machen, uh, a minister in a Presbyterian church professor at Princeton Seminary, didn't nail 95 theses, but he did write Christianity and Liberalism. Because for Machen, there is no good news if you get the personal work of Jesus Christ wrong. And that was what was happening in the Presbyterian church. It had begun to lose its way answering the question, who is Jesus? In the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had begun to lose its way when it ceased being able to answer the question, how is one justified? But now there had been a progression to where 400 years later, here is the issue. Who is Jesus? And Machen was willing to take a stand that Jesus was no mere man. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus is no mere example to follow. Jesus, as we have recited tonight from the Catechism, is the only Redeemer of God's elect. He is the Son of God who became man. And He did so by taking Himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. And in agreement with Martin Luther, Machen believed that this Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, this Jesus who was the only mediator between God and man, this Jesus was the only one who could pay the price of sin. For Machen, like Luther, knew his sin. Machen knew that works condemn and do not save. And that's why J. Gresson Machen did not give in to the liberal talking points. He wasn't going to agree to this about who Jesus is. Because if you turn Jesus into the modern, sensible nice guy who's not the Lord and Savior and Judge of the world, then you also lose the Gospel. Because Machen understood, you can try to live all you want as Jesus did, but that's not what saves you. What saves you is an act of God on your behalf. What saves you is Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the price of your sins. That's what saves you. And so, Machen took this stand, wrote Christianity in liberalism. Uh, and here uh, we are. It's such a wonderful evening. I'm so honored to be asked to proclaim God's word to you this evening. Here we are. Churches and members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church throughout South Jersey, 
And we are those uh, who are standing as the air, uh, on the shoulders of Machen. And those who have gone before us, even in this church and in this presbytery, on taking that same stand. Standing with Luther in regard to there is no gospel without justification by faith alone. But also standing with Machen. There is no gospel unless you get Jesus right. And with that in mind, our text this evening is Matthew chapter 4. Because Matthew chapter 4 is a text that puts before us the question of who is Jesus and what is Christianity. And that is why when J. Gresson Machen was writing Christianity Liberalism, this is the text that he would preach out of. And this was the text that over the decade of the 1920s he would often preach at in churches. Because again, it seeks, we see in this chapter an answer to who is Jesus and what is Christianity. Liberals were arguing from Matthew 4 that Christianity at its beginning was a school of ethics Jesus being the great teacher and example to follow. So again, the path of salvation would be, be like Jesus. Do what Jesus did, and God will see your good works. He will bless you, and you will have salvation. Machen and others, uh, confessional believers in the church, said, no, Christianity is a kingdom. That's what we see in chapter 4. Christianity is a kingdom of redemption. And Jesus is no mere man, no mere good man. He's the king. He's the promised one. He is the king and Messiah and Lord who has come to save his people. Now just to put our text in the context of Matthew's gospel as a whole, you can divide Matthew's gospel up into three main parts. The first part goes from the opening up into uh, chapter 4, verse 16. And this does deal with the question of who Jesus is. You see that, that Jesus here is the one who uh, is God come in the flesh. He's, he's born of the virgin. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is uh, the Son of God. Jesus is the one promised uh, by the prophets in the Old Covenant. So you see that. In the, uh, through 1.1 to 4.16. But then you get to verse 17, and we're told from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this brings us to the middle part of that, this gospel. And this is about what Jesus proclaims. This is about his public ministry. And so here we have Jesus preaching and teaching. And you see uh, his ministry as he proclaims the coming of the kingdom. But then you get to chapter 16, verse uh, 21. And there we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So again, you have that time marker. From this time, that's the marker you saw in verse 17 in chapter 4. Now you see it in, in chapter 16, verse 21. 
And from that point to the end of the Gospel, it's about what Jesus does, His passion. He's going to the cross. He's going to the cross to die for the sins of His people and to be raised again. So, uh, so Matthew's Gospel breaks up into these three parts, broadly speaking. The first part, who Jesus is. The middle part, uh, the uh, public ministry of Jesus. And the last part is the passion or what Jesus does. So the text that we have this morning or this evening is right on that transition between the end of the first section and the start of the middle section. And so we're, again, remember where we started. Remember what was happening in the, in the Presbyterian conflict. Liberalism was not only misidentifying Jesus, it was also misidentifying what Christianity is. And so, perhaps you can see, this is why Nietzsche set up shop here in this text. Because as you're coming off that first section of who Jesus is, and then in the second section of what he proclaims, you begin to have both questions answered. We read, and right before our verse in verse 17 where our text starts, we do read in verse uh, 14 that Jesus had entered into the territory of uh, Galilee and there uh, he uh, was uh, in the cities of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, um, whenever you see a quote uh, in the New Testament and you have it then uh, before you, it's really, really helpful to go back and to read what's actually in the Old Testament, what's being quoted from. So this is from Isaiah chapter 9. I will, um, um, this is what we read in Matthew. We read, The land of Sebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So that is what we read Matthew quoting Isaiah as. And remember, this is as he's coming to the end of this section of who Jesus is. This is your dramatic conclusion. What we read uh, in Isaiah 9, however, is this. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, do you notice the difference? Do you notice what has happened? Matthew has dropped off the two time references. He doesn't include the preface in the former time he brought into contempt in the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali. But even more striking is what he does with the latter phrase. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea. Now, that phrasing in Isaiah's prophecy is what Israel hoped for. The coming day when the Messiah 
would make the way glorious for his people. And yet Matthew leaves it out. Why? He wants you to connect it with Jesus. He wants you to see that Jesus' coming makes the way glorious. He wants you to see in dropping out these two time references that Jesus is the one who brings the transition from the former times to now the coming of the kingdom, to now the the time when it will be made glorious and the light will shine among darkness. Jesus is the one who brings this about. He appears and the light shines. His coming is the pivot of the ages. Uh, Friends, I hope you can see from the text, um, this is no mere man. This is not just some nice guy or great teacher. And this is the one that the scripture is all about. More than that, this is the one that human history is all about. He's the one that the people of God were praying for. His coming makes the way glorious. This is a witness to the king. That's who Jesus is. He is the king. Now, what was happening in Machen's day is that next to the reading of the text that the historic church has always had. But what was happening in Machen's day, there were those who, some who were saying, well, doesn't this prove the opposite? Can't we see here, you know, uh, that, that maybe you know, Matthew didn't think this highly of Jesus. And that's why he drops out these references. No. It's, again, it's actually the exact opposite of the liberal contention. Matthew, in dropping them out, is trying to emphasize them all the more. Let me show you in Matthew's Gospel, at least quickly, how this is the case. So, Matthew's Gospel, it's so wonderful uh, how the, the Word of God is so amazing and so rich. But another theme that runs through Matthew's Gospel is that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So in the opening chapter, verse 23, we have that declaration that that who is Jesus, Jesus is. And throughout Matthew's Gospel, you will see that Matthew is telling the people of God, He is with you. When two and three are gathered, there Jesus is in their midst. The Lord is with them. Well, what do you get when you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel? Well, you get to the only Gospel that doesn't have an ascension. Now, does that mean that Matthew doesn't believe that Jesus ascended? Of course he believes that Jesus ascended. Why doesn't he include it? Why does it drop out at the end? Because he wants you to know, as we're told in the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And even though we don't see Him with the eye, He is with us. The church is to know that. Again, when Matthew does this, it's theological. He is emphasizing all the more 
just who Jesus is. He is our only hope. So that is what's going on here uh, as you come to uh, the transition to this public ministry. So if Jesus is the Son of God, and then we have the declaration that Jesus, of what his public ministry is, and here is where we find out uh, the beginnings of Christianity. This is where you find the disciples for the first time. Uh, Jesus proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we're so used to preaching, and it's a wonderful thing, but we actually often don't think about what preaching is. Preaching is the announcement of something. It's proclamation that announces something. The difference between preaching and teaching is that teaching is detailed instruction about what is announced. And here in the verses that we have read... We have Jesus both preaching, proclaiming the kingdom, and Jesus teaching about the kingdom. And uh, uh, the Jews gathered uh, would have loved uh, to hear that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was everything that they could have dreamed for. everything that they could have hoped for, particularly um, to finally get their opportunity uh, to put it to all the Gentiles who have put it to them. But here we have Jesus uh, in his opening word declaring something that they weren't expecting. For Jesus proclaims, repent. That's his opening word. Repent. Uh, The declaration from the very beginning of his public ministry then, the very first word carries with it the understanding of the unworthiness of those hearing this proclamation, the unworthiness to enter into this kingdom. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here is the king, and here and with him is the coming of the kingdom. But there needs to be a radical adjustment if one wants to enter his kingdom. A turning is needed, a turning from self and a turning from sin. And in many ways, and in many ways, this was the question of the Reformation. When Martin Luther, on noon, went down the street from the uh, monastery, from the the, the college to the cathedral, nailed those theses, the very first thesis had to do with repentance. The very first thesis, when our Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And now, 400 years later, uh, as Machen is taking a stand against those who are, are uh, denying who Jesus is, attacking doctrine, there also was that sense in which they were attacking anthropology. 
Because liberals were saying, hey, you're plenty good enough to enter into the kingdom. Just do what Jesus did. But again, the clear teaching here, the opening word of Jesus' message in his public ministry is repent. Well, we, after this proclamation, we see in our text in verse 18 and following, Jesus uh, demonstrating his lordship, uh, his sovereign saving power, and the calling of the brothers, uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew in verse 18. He calls them with authority. He summons them and he calls them and their hearts are changed. I mean, this is conversion. This is, uh, they're hearing the word of the living Savior and their hearts are instantly changed. And uh, they believe and follow him. Uh, And then another set of brothers uh, leave all behind to follow him. And then we're told, after calling the brothers in verse 23, that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And we see here the inbreaking of this kingdom that Jesus has proclaimed is present with his coming. It's the inbreaking of the supernatural kingdom of God. Jesus is the king, and he brings with him a kingdom that even Satan cannot stop. Jesus is the strong man, the stronger man, who binds the strong man in order to plunder his house. Jesus proclaims the coming of the kingdom. He he calls and he converts. He heals and he saves. And there's not one thing that Satan can do about it. Now friends, that's not to say that Satan isn't active. We know all, all too well that Satan is active in this world. In the words of First Peter, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour But in view here, and in view with the other passages in the New Testament that talks about about the binding of Satan, uh, what is in view here is the spread of the gospel. Uh, With the coming of Jesus Christ and the transition from the former times to now, to the light shining in the darkness. There has been a great transition in history. And there's nothing that Satan can do about it. Um, You do realize that prior to Jesus coming, there's only one tiny little nation on earth that has the gospel, that has the light. It's Israel. It's surrounded in the whole world by those uh, who do not believe and do not have the gospel. But now, Jesus comes and the kingdom is in breaking. And Jesus is the one who's healing and casting out demons. It's a preview 
of what's going to happen with the gospel going forth from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Friends, there is nothing that Satan can do to stop the advance of the gospel. You see, that's why uh, J. Gresson Machen not only wrote Christianity and liberalism, that's why he took a further stand in regard to missions. Um, Why is the Lord God keeping us here on this earth for a second longer? Why doesn't he take us right now to be with himself in glory? It's so his church can reach the lost throughout the four corners of the earth and to take that gospel. And Machen knew that if it was not a gospel that had Jesus Christ at its center, not Jesus Christ the good man, but Jesus Christ the Son of God who came to die for sinners. And if that gospel did not have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, then it was truly no good news. And that was reason enough to take a stand even if it meant the loss of everything. It might not have meant death like in Luther's day when Luther was condemned to die. But it meant pretty much everything next to it. Your prestige teaching at Princeton, gone. Uh, Your status among friends in the Presbyterian world gone. Uh, Your money, uh, particularly in the the Depression, uh, at least for those who are are going to take a stand with you, totally gone. There were 12 brave believers here in Elmer who took a stand this very uh, time, 87 years ago, to start this church. Um, And there were 48 other congregations across North America that took that stand with them. Why do you do that in the Depression? Why do you do that when you know that you'll lose all your money, not only your building, but often the friends that you work with outside the community because it's bad form to ruffle feathers? You only do so because you believe that the gospel is that important. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. What is Christianity? It's a kingdom of redemption. If you don't get those things right, then the church is set up for utter collapse. And that, sadly, is what we have seen all around us here in America. Uh, When Machen took his stand, the things going on in our culture today would have been unthinkable. Uh, That when you have 
the collapse of the Protestant church all around us. This is what this is the generations that you breed. Um, there's more there's more than ever good reason for the OPC that we would preach the word of God, that we would stand upon the principles of the Reformation, and that we would proclaim that Jesus Christ truly is our only hope in this life in the one to come. Now, in closing, the, 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 the name of our message uh, this evening was J. Gresson Machen, The Presbyterian Conflict in Us. Um, there is no question that uh, Machen was a battler. He was a fighter. Uh, there's, there's no question that he was. And there's no question that uh, we in the OPC have been fighters and battlers in many ways. But I would put before you that, um, that what Machen got right is something we need to get right. Um, and that Machen was a battler with a broken heart. And if we're going to be battlers, we need to be those with a broken heart. This is what Machen said in Christianity and Liberalism. He said, Although Christianity does not end with the broken heart, it does begin with the broken heart. It begins with the consciousness of sin. Friends, we are Orthodox Presbyterians we need to confess that we are sinners. Not just others. We are sinners. We need to acknowledge that we have fallen short of the glory of God. You see, in Matthew chapter 4, it was not just the Gentiles that needed to repent. It was the chosen people, the Jews, that needed to repent also. To make it more concrete... It's not just the liberals that need to repent. We need to repent. We need to turn from self. We need to stop justifying ourselves. We need to turn from sin. We need to be those who are not arrogant and boastful and proud. In the words of Jesus, in describing his disciples uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, we need to know to the depths of our hearts that we are the poor in spirit, that we're bankrupt apart from God, and that uh, our only hope is found in him. this passion that we are to have for the gospel, the passion we have for the Reformation doctrine, the passion that we should have for missions throughout this whole world, that should be marked then by a broken heart. Humility, love for others, passion 
concern, not lording it over others, not arrogance, not intellectual superiority, but being those who know that we were dead in trespasses and sin, and the living God had mercy upon us through the gift of His Son, and that His Son called us when uh, we wanted nothing to do with Him. He summoned us, and our hearts were changed. And it's with that great confidence, knowing the power of His Word and Spirit to change the deadest hearts, that we are those who go forth, not only testifying to others about Jesus, but having confidence in His preached Word and His read Word, uh, that this is the advance of the kingdom, that Jesus is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May it be said of us then that we love our Lord and Savior with all of our heart, but may it also be said of us that we have broken hearts, that we are the poor in spirit. And may we have the the, the blessed assurance then that truly through Jesus, and his graciousness to us and his work on our behalf that ours is the kingdom of heaven.